Okie dokie, it's 12.35 Wednesday the 11th of May, which means it's time for our Fresh Insights webinar brought to you by the Graduate Recruiters Network. Um, welcome everyone, really good to see you all. Uh, before we begin, we kindly ask if you could all be muted, um, but as Dan mentioned in the chat, it would be lovely if a few of you had your webcams on, it'd be lovely to see you all. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, my name's Katie Pryor and I'm one of the senior client solutions consultants at the GRB. Um, and I've been here for just over three and a half years now. To give you a bit of background about me, I work in partnership with lots of different large graduate recruiters such as Tesco, PepsiCo, Birdseye and much more. Uh, providing them with um, outsourced solutions for their recruitment processes. So my team is slightly different to your traditional recruitment model um, as we act more of an extension to um, your team um, and can support with parts or the full recruitment process. So we can do, um, for example, just advertising, application screening, etc. Um, so the GRB group. So the GRB group consists of several different divisions, which I'll introduce you to in a moment. Um, so for those of you who are new today, the GRB stands for Graduate Recruitment Bureau, and we're a recruitment agency specialising in introducing first class talent to organisations such as yourselves. So we work across various sectors, um, including sales, IT, engineering, marketing, consultancy, finance, pretty much every sector, um, as well as the recruitment solutions division, which um, I work in, as mentioned earlier. And we've actually just celebrated our 25 year anniversary, which is very exciting. We also have two experienced hire divisions who are Cortex and Metrica. They serve our clients who are looking for graduates with say three to four years experience. Cortex specialises on the IT side, whereas Metrica specialise on the analytics side. Um, and then we have Graduate Mentor, which is a new platform launched in August 2020 um, to mitigate the effects of the pandemic, especially for students and graduates from underrepresented and disadvantaged groups. Um, we have a huge range of mentors who kindly volunteer their time um, and offer free one to one mentoring for those students and graduates. Um, We've organisations such as Facebook and Google signed up to this, just to name a few. Um, so if this is something that you'd be interested in, uh, feel free to get in touch with Dan or I at the end of today. So GRN, for the benefit of our new members today, um, GRN was actually set up back in 2009 for our clients and friends originally uh, with the idea of sort of bringing like minded people together who are involved in early talent. So typically we have HR advisors, HR business partners, recruitment managers, um, early talent leads, etc. The idea being that we can all come together and discuss current topics in the early talent marketplace and share best practice, um, et cetera, which is you know, really beneficial for anyone who's new within the industry, um, but also for anyone who has been in the industry for a long time and just wants some new ideas or anything. 
So membership has grown considerably over the years. Since we started in 2009, we have over 3,300 members, which is really, really impressive. Um, it's an invitation only event. So we carefully handpick select the members in GRN. Um, so we've invited 88 new members in the last month and we're looking to grow this as much as we can, hopefully to reach 10,000 members by 2025. And our members typically consist of FTSE 100 employers, also fast growing SMEs. Um, and, you know, joining the GRN, you'll receive invites to webinars like this, special events which are in person, access to our LinkedIn forum, blogs, surveys, jobs, um, plus a quarterly newsletter. We are hoping to do more face-to-face -face events this year now that everything is going back to normal, thank goodness. Um, and there are extra benefits for VIP members for just £25 a month. So who is in the room today? We've actually created a word cloud of everyone's job titles that are in the room today so that you could get a bit of an idea about who attends these kinds of events. And you all represent a large range of industries and roles, uh, which is really good to see. So in terms of actual companies that are here today, we've got Amazon, AstraZeneca, Grant Thornton, HSBC, John Lewis and more. So it's really great to see you all today. So the agenda, we're going to pass over to Simon in a moment, um, who'll be discussing important employment law cases and developments in the last year. So he'll be talking for around 30 minutes or so, and then we'll, doing, we'll be doing a Q&A at the end um, and the way we did it this time was we allowed you all to submit pre-submitted questions. Um, so we've hand selected a few of those. Um, but if we do have time today, we will answer some live um, on this webinar. So today's presenter, Simon, he has actually spoken on here before and is an employment partner at JMW Solicitors and he's and JMW are a top 100 law firm and he's worked there for I think it's since September 2017. Um, so welcome Simon, thanks for your time today and that is enough from me now and I will pass it over to you. Thanks Simon. Thank you very much. No thanks for the kind introduction and for inviting me to speak. Um, let me try and get my slides on the screen. Let's hope this works. Okay. See my slides? Yep. Absolutely, that's great. No, thank you very much for asking me to speak. I've spoken once before at one of your events. Um, and it's always nice to be asked to come back. Clearly, I did something right the first time. Um, just a very brief introduction about me. I'm an employment partner at JMW. I've been here for five years. Um, um, although I do employment work, I do a lot of my work within the recruitment sector. So I do act for a lot of recruiters. 
Um, but I also advise on a number of specialist pieces of legislation, including the agency workers regulations, the conduct of employment regulations, and I have a quite strong interest in restrictive covenant law that comes out of um, working with recruitment businesses. A lot of my work is done in relation to that, but I do do the full sector and spectrum of employment work. So what I've been asked to do for you today is to provide effectively a brief annual employment law update and take you through some of the um, some of the hot things that we've seen in the seen come out of the of the law in the last um, year or year or so. So let's just move this forward. So I'm going to have a look at some developments in a couple of holiday pay cases. Some really important stuff comes out of that. I'll then have a brief look at some of the issues that have come out of the pandemic in terms of hybrid working and working from home. Some updates in relation to digital right to work checks, which were slightly changed during the pandemic. And I'll just have a look into the conclusion of a couple of employment law cases. Um, there's quite a lot there actually to cover in half an hour. So I'm not going to I'm not going to hang about. I'm going to crack on pretty quickly or else I'm never going to get through. You never ask a lawyer to speak and expect them to to to, to get through what they've what they've been asked to get through in half an hour. So um, I'll move straight on. So the first two cases that I'm going to look at are the cases of Harper Trust and Brazil, um, which these both these cases relate to holiday pay. Um, so the first case, Harper Trust and Brazil, was heard by the Supreme Court back in November 21, and that's the highest court we've got in this country. So it's a really important case, and that relates to um, the payment of holiday pay in relation to casual atypical workers um, so somebody who's on a zero hours contract or an agency worker that could be relevant and then i'll also have a look at a case that was um brought against pimlico plumbers again in relation to holiday pay and that case was heard by the court of appeal and judgment was delivered back only in february of 2022 so i'll move straight on Probably useful for me to just give you a brief idea about what the law currently says about holiday pay, very briefly. So under the working time regulations back in 1998, workers are entitled to 5.6 weeks of annual paid leave. Um, this is effectively the statutory entitlement and it's normally made up of 20 days holiday as well as the eight public days. It doesn't have to be, but that's just the traditional way it's always been looked at. Um, but that equates to 5.6 weeks worth of annual leave. Employers are able to enhance that if they want to. Um, we've then got the European Working Time Directive for which the regulations derive from that basically says that all member states should incorporate into their legislation provisions that entitle workers to a minimum of four weeks paid annual leave. And therefore, what the UK does, it gives an additional 1.6 weeks of annual leave on top, which is in excess of what is required by European law. So that just sets it out and briefly just sets out in some brief terms how we get to the how we get to the stage of looking at these two cases. And in this particular case, Related actually to a music teacher, Mrs. Brazel was a clarinet and actually a saxophone teacher. You may say how that's relevant to me, but please bear with me and 
I'll, I'll try and give you an idea of why this might be relevant to your business or in terms of people that are being supplied into you. Um, so she was employed by the Harper Trust and it runs a school and she was a visiting music teacher. She is employed by the trust on a zero hours contract, meaning she didn't have a set number of hours, working hours. And the hours that she was given were dependent on the number of pupils who actually required tuition in instruments. And she was paid monthly on the basis of an agreed hourly rate applied to the hours worked in the previous month. So because she was a worker within the meaning of the working time regulations, she's entitled to 5.6 weeks paid annual leave. Um, and since the school holidays were longer than that, the trust didn't, didn't, didn't designate any particular parts of them as statutory leave, and instead it made historically payments in three different lumps in December, April and August. In 2011, what the trust did, it altered the manner in which it paid holiday pay, um, and it followed a method that was recommended by ACAS and available on the government guidance for casual payment of holiday to casual workers. And what the guidance suggested was that for those who are casual or regular hours workers, the holiday entitlement could be made and calculated as being 12.0%, sorry, of the hours that were worked. And there's a whole method and calculation that goes into that. Um, and she ends up bringing a claim to the Employment Tribunal in 2015 that was then subsequently appealed to the Employment Appeal Tribunal and again appealed to the Court of Appeal and finally to the Supreme Court in November, was heard by the Supreme Court in 2021. And the question that the court had to decide was, was this calculation of 12.07% compliant with the working time regulations and that's what we'll have a look at now um the problem that really arose in this case and i think it's highlighted by one of the comments that was made by one of the barristers in the case was that because this way of calculating holiday pay was being challenged as not providing her with the right entitlement. This was actually favouring those people who were engaged on long contracts, but actually didn't undertake work on a regular basis. And as an extreme example that was put, say, for example, a worker only provided services for one week of the year for which they only earned £1,000, they in theory would be entitled to 5.6 weeks notional annual leave for which they would be paid a sum, you guessed it, 5.6 times 1,000 makes £5,600. Under the 12.07% method, they would only receive 120 pounds. So you can see the disparity that came about in this particular case. And the question that the court is still got to grapple with. Um, 
So the Supreme Court are having to grapple with this particular question as to how paid annual leave for term time workers should be calculated when they have a permanent contract which continues throughout the year. And that's a pretty common thread is that people have these permanent contracts, but they don't work um, their entirety of the year. And what the Court of Appeal decided was that part time year workers remain entitled to 5.6 weeks paid annual leave. Um, and that is and, and that this entitlement cannot be prorated to reflect the fact that they don't work for the entire year. And they said what the court of said what the court of appeal said that the correct amount of holiday pay should be calculated by applying the provisions in the employment rights tag to identify the amount of a week's pay and multiplying that by 5.6 and that's the case even if the amount of the holiday pay would exceed 12.07% of the part year workers annual earnings so this is an argument that potentially has wide ranging effects for those who work on zero hours contracts um, or on permanent contracts, but don't work for the entire year. And calculating a holiday pay based on 12.07% of hours work may no longer be acceptable. And it could actually result in, in some cases, being relatively close to the actual holiday pay due um, and reducing employers' exposure in the event that a, a claim was brought for unlawful deduction from wages. But if the court decides to go with the extreme example and potential calculation that I highlighted, and I accept it's an extreme calculation, what you can see is that the potential for this rolled up holiday pay rate, which is what it actually is called, um, could have the effect that workers receive significantly more than the 12.07% of, of hours worked calculation that is currently used. So we'll just have to wait to see what the Supreme Court decides. But this is one case definitely to keep your eye on, especially if it's a methodology that is used in your business or by those who supply zero hours contracts labour or agency worker labour into your business, because it could have a significant impact on the, the cumulative amount that needs to be paid in respect of those workers. So that's Harper Trust in Brazil. We then move on to the case of Mr. Smith and Pimlico Plumbers. So Mr. Smith was employed, well, he wasn't employed, sorry, he was a worked as a heating and plumbing engineer um, for Pimlico Plumbers between 2005 and 2011. Um, Mr. Smith identified himself as a self-employed contractor instead of a worker, and that's a hugely significant point in this case um, because he was not actually paid for the time that he took off work. And what he did during that period was when he took time out of work, I won't call it holiday, that was unpaid because he was self-employed, he wasn't a he wasn't a, he wasn't a worker, and although his employment in inverted commas ended in May 2011, he subsequently challenged Pimlico Plumbers and brought claims under the working time regulations and um, 
the Employment Rights Act in relation to unpaid holiday pay. There's some of the case law, which I'm not going to go through in its entirety, but there was some really important case law that went before Pimlico Plumbers. We've got the case, and I'll talk about that, King and Sash Windows, which is a really important case. It held that the right to, um, the right under the Working Time Directive was a single right to paid leave. Um, and whilst the structure of the working time deals with the right to leave and the right to pay separately, we've got to look at what the directive says. Um, SAS Windows case outlined that workers should be paid on termination for any periods of annual leave that, that, that they'd accrued during their employment. However, um, that didn't matter whether or not it it, it had been paid for. Um, it, it was a question of whether the leave had been taken. Um, there was no limit to the amount of leave that could be carried over in this particular type of case. Um, but the case did state that workers who have in fact taken their leave should then not bring claims for holiday pay. And there's a clear distinguish, distinguishing factor here in this particular case between taken and untaken leave. In terms of the other cases, they all addressed relevant principles in relation to this particular case um, and, and just need to be borne in mind as we as we go through um, what, what happened in this particular case. So we then have to have a look at what the Court of Appeal actually decide. What the Court of Appeal decided in Smith and Pimlico Plumbers, it clarified the position on the right to paid leave for workers and it made particular advancements on the King and Sash Windows case. Firstly, in Pimlico Plumbers, they were, they were found to have incorrectly identified Mr Smith as a self-employed contractor instead of a worker. And this had a huge effect on his entitlement to holiday pay because, as I've said, contractors didn't have the right to annual leave. What the Court of Appeal also said, that the, raid, the right to paid annual leave is a single composite right and shouldn't be separated out into um, the leave itself and an entitlement to pay. And this made the Court of Appeal consider Mr Smith's entitlement to leave, which had already been taken. And what the Court of Appeal said in Pimlico was that there should not be any difference between the leave which was versus the leave which wasn't taken that this would go against the entire composite right. So we've got the conclusions that were reached in this particular case was that each year that an individual was denied status and holiday was accumulated but not taken, the portion of accumulated but not taken leave could be carried over. So this is distinguishing what happened in the, in the, other, in the previous cases. And therefore, it was, if it was acceptable for the above to happen, then in Mr Smith's case, there was no reason why the principle was not equally applicable to any taken but unpaid leave. So we're left in a situation where the right to paid annual leave continued to accrue for Mr Smith for over six years. And what he's claiming for is £75,000 worth of holiday. At this stage, the case has been referred back to the Employment Tribunal to determine the extent and the exact amount of what holiday pay is owed. 
But as you can see, this case is going to have huge ripple effects in relation to people who are classified incorrectly and in similar to Mr Smith just took leave but wasn't properly paid for that leave. So it's definitely one to look out for very sharply. And if I can recommend one point, it is to undertake an analysis of those people who you are classifying as self-employed, but their arrangements are not reviewed on a regular basis. Because I can tell you the courts certainly look behind the label that is placed on contracts. They don't just say, well, you call this person self-employed, they must be self-employed. It's one type of analysis that you will be required to do if you're going to avoid falling into the trap as Pimlico Plumbers did. So that's holiday pay, and I don't apologize for spending quite a bit of time on that. I know they're complicated cases, but equally very important cases to have a look at. Then just have a look at some of the issues arising from remote and flexible working. And although we're no longer faced with the issues about lockdown and the pandemic uh, or furlough for that matter, so we've got still got some long standing concerns on how working culture has evolved now since the pandemic started in 2020. Um, just to track you through some of the points that we've definitely seen over the last couple of years. So COVID's clearly affected businesses in numerous ways. The pandemic's increased the recruitment pool as businesses look to different ways um, of recruiting um, talent. Many roles are now advertised as being remote and there's expectations that employees only need to perhaps come into the office once a week or once every other week. And many individuals are looking to expand their job search. And it's definitely a very positive thing for uh, employees because they can look for roles that alternatively would never have been available to them in their area. So we've got higher job satisfaction and employers are also going to benefit from this because they could be looking for an individual in a very niche area of work. And if they can throw open their um, candidate criteria to a wider a wider pool on a UK basis, rather than to their specific location, they've definitely got more chance of finding candidates. So as lockdown made um, flexible working the, a necessity, um, it shifted the emphasis really in relation to flexible working being something that was possible to now some people consider to be a right. And then, as I've said, many employees only wish to pursue roles that are fully flex flexible um, and the popularity of flexible working practices has specifically included a rise in home working and the offering of flexi time. The home working environments also created significant advantages for those with caring responsibilities during the pandemic. And um, we had nurseries that were closed and care homes are at limited capacity during lockdowns. Um, so employees were expected to carry out um, their usual duties and balance this um, by looking after after childcare and other relatives, perhaps um, on a flexible basis. Um, so what we found ourselves in is we've got a situation where flexible working has become more of the norm and flexi time and home working, but we still haven't had a change yet in the law. So just briefly to give you what the current legal regime looks like, um, the flexible working regime dates back into 
2003 when the um, Employment Act came in force um, of 2002. And he stated only those who met certain criteria could reflect, request flexible working, um, which would actually constitute a formal change to their terms and conditions. Um, the Act didn't produce an absolute right for employees to change their working conditions, but placed an obligation on employers to take the request seriously and justify any refusal on certain business grounds. Back in 2003, the request could only be made by employees who had 26 weeks service and childcare responsibilities for those under the age of 18. We had expansions to the legislation in 2014, which made it, um, which, which relaxed some of the criteria and for and also the class of employee who could make uh, a flexible working request, which included those who had caring responsibilities, um, they could then apply. So we had a significant expansion in the law. What the current position is, is as of today is that employees who have 26 weeks service can make a claim, but they can't be agency workers or a member of the armed forces and they haven't previously made a flexible working request in the previous 12 months. They're the people who can make a request. So the sorts of things that you find that people can ask for is the times of hours, the times and hours that are worked and also the location of their work. We've then got the flexible working bill. So as a result of significant greater awareness of and the benefits of flexible working and the pandemic, the flexible working bill was first read in the House of Commons and introduced into Parliament in June 2021. And I understand that the bill is due for a second reading in the House of Commons in May of this year. And the bill is still at a very early stage of conception, still needs to be confirmed in the House of Commons before it can be looked at in the House of Lords, which means it may not come into, in, in, may not be introduced for quite some time. But it's important to know what some of the changes that are proposed look like. So what the bill has suggested is that the right to flexible working may become a day one right instead of after the 26 weeks of employment. And it would make flexible working a lot more accessible to employees. What the bill says is that workers should be given the right. And whilst there's a common misconception about the difference between employees and workers, the bill hasn't expanded as yet as to whether or not it intends to cover workers as well as employees. Um, it's definitely something to watch out for as the, as, the, as the bill progresses, but it would be a significant and quite an interesting development if it was to cover um, workers because it would protect a larger proportion of the workforce. The bill's also suggested that employees should be required, employers, sorry, should be required to offer flexible working arrangements in employment contracts and it would extend the right to request flexible working from a statutory regime to something which would have to be considered as a matter of contract law. And that means that if employee employers didn't offer flexible working in accordance with their employment contracts, then there may be additional claims for breach of contract that could come about if it wasn't in the contract. And finally, what the bill is also proposing is that employers are going to be required to advertise the availability types of flexible flexibility in vacancy notices. So it will encourage greater transparency so that employees can understand what working arrangements that they'll be expected to have 
should they enter into a contract with their new employer. So that's definitely something to watch out for. We've then got right to work checks and employee screening. So temporary changes were made to the right to work check scheme um, due to the COVID pandemic. And it was basically to make the process a lot more simplistic for employers. So from the 30th of March 2020, and it's still running up to the 30th of September of this year, employers can still complete a right to work check via video call. And these measures need to be undertaken for every employer or worker who enters into employment with the employer. So to ensure that no discrimination will take place or that any individual is singled out for being subject to a test. And what the employer must do is ask the individual to submit a scanned copy or a photo of their original documents by email or using a mobile app. There's then a video call with the individual asking them to hold up the original documents to the camera so that they can be checked against the digital copy. And finally, a, rec a recording is then made of the date um, uh, to check and note that that was when the check took place or an adjusted check took place on a particular date that was due to the COVID pandemic. And that's still a regime that runs, like I said, until the 30th of September this year. It was due to be phased out in April, but they did extend that. But what the government has said is that they've realised that this was a significant, um, a, a significant change to the way that right to work checks were taking place prior to the pandemic, and it was actually really quite helpful and made the process a lot quicker. So what they've said is, from the thirtieth of September, employers are going to be able to use a certified, and they call it an IDVT service. So a document validation service with particular providers to carry out online digital identity checks. And this is effectively a service that is being run by the Home Office. And by enabling the use of these types of checks, what the Home Office is saying is, is that it will help to support long term post pandemic working practices, accelerate the recruitment and onboarding process, improve employee mobility, enhance the security and integrity of the checks. Like I said, employers are required to carry out these checks for all new employees before they start work and for all existing employees who have limited immigration permissions and enable them to, to enable them to work in the UK. If adequate right to work checks are not carried out and you are found to have employed an illegal worker, you could be subject to significant civil and criminal penalties could be a penalty of up to £20,000 per worker and a custodial sentence that, 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 that doesn't exceed five years and an unlimited fine. So the implications and the repercussions of getting it wrong are significant, so it's worth familiarising yourself with the changes. And then finally, hopefully I've still got some time just to run into a case law update at the end and just to check on a couple of the important employment cases that I've seen in the last in the last year. The first case is the case of Stuart Delivery and Augustine. So Mr Augustine was, um, he, he was a courier, he worked for Stuart Delivery Limited um, and they utilised a technology app um, connecting couriers with 
client via a mobile application. He could accept jobs, Mr. Augustine, on an ad hoc basis or sign up for work at particular times, which were referred to basically as slots. There were financial incentives to sign up to the slots. And if the courier either could or did not want to work for one of those slots that they'd agreed to, they could offer it out to other couriers on the platform. But if no one else agreed to work the slot, there were penalties if the original courier didn't do so. So Mr Augustine brought claims in the employment tribunal, claiming he was a worker and he had protections in relation to his pay and in terms of working time regulations, entitlement in terms of holiday. Um, what Stuart Delivery said is that there was no obligation or grounds to perform the services personally, and that was critical in this particular case. So this case ends up in the um, in the Court of Appeal. And what the Court of Appeal said is that they found. Mr Augustine was a worker and they dismissed. They dismissed the appeal and the fundamental issue was whether the claimant actually undertook to perform the services personally or not. Um, and what the Court of Appeal said in this case was that. The tribunal had decided that the right of substitution was not inconsistent with a personal service obligation. And the system was designed to ensure that the couriers worked for slots for which they'd signed up for. And a limited, and what they said it was limited, it was fettered, there was not a lot of discretion in there to notify other couriers who were already working for the organisation and that an individual was prepared to release a slot was not a sufficient right of substitution to remove the obligation to work personally. And it said that the employment tribunal was right to find that Mr Augustine was a worker. So it's another example in this particular case of the tribunals and the courts looking to the reality of a situation when deciding the question of employment and worker status. Um, and another one of the cases that comes out of the gig economy. All I can say to you is in these particular cases is that the cases seem to turn all on their own facts to advise and consider the nature and degree um, to appoint a substitute. Um, and you're therefore going to have to carefully analyse whether or not if you're treating somebody as self-employed, whether that is consistent with the reality of the situation, because in this case, this, this, no doubt, this particular case and what settlement that they will ultimately come to, if that's the way it goes, will have ripple effects on all the other self-employed individuals that, that that they supply. So that's Stuart Delivery and Augustine. And finally, the case of Coker and Angard Staffing Solutions. This is a Court of Appeal judgment that was issued only in February this year in relation to agency worker rights under the Agency Worker Right Regulations 2010. Um, and this decision clarified the position on the right to be notified of vacancies under Regulation 13 of the Agency Workers Regulations. And just to give you a few brief facts, the appellant in this case, Mr Coker, or Cocker, was employed by Angard Staffing Solutions. It's a wholly owned subsidiary of the Royal Mail Group. And although Mr. 
Mr. Kuka was directly employed by Angard, his pay and terms and conditions were defined by Royal Mail. And he was supplied to work in the Royal Mail Leeds delivery centre where the dispute arose. And in that centre, vacancies were placed on a communal notice board and permanent employees could apply for the, the jobs, but agency workers were prohibited from applying for the vacancies and applications from agency workers were only considered when the vacancies were advertised externally. And what the Court of Appeal had to decide in this case was whether for the purposes of the agency workers regulations, did he have a right to be only notified of the vacancy or a secondary right to apply and a third right to be considered for the post? But the Court of Appeal said, no, we don't agree that the right extends that far. And what the Lord Justice of Appeal said in this particular case was that the agency workers regulations and the directive were intended to strike a balance between security for the employment of temporary workers and the need for both employees and employers to have a flexibility and that provided providing agency workers with a right to be notified, to apply and to be considered went too far uh, uh, and gave too much security to the agency workers. He said that Parliament would never have intended to have imposed such a positive obligation on employers to give this right of equal treatment to agency workers and therefore it wasn't right that he had the uh, he had a requirement to be considered and to apply for that vacancy. It was enough that he should be notified. What the Lord Justice of Appeal said, Lord Justice Green, the right of notification alone wasn't meaningless because there is a real advantage over members of the general public who would not be afforded otherwise the same access to information. And that was uh, that's the case of Coker and Angard. And that's me. Sorry, that was a bit quick and a bit racy, but there was quite a bit to cover there. No, that was brilliant. Yeah, that was brilliant. Thank Let you, Let me take, Simon. My, take my slides down or try and take my slides down. <laughs> I can do that. Um, cool. I think we're going to run through some of the questions that we had submitted beforehand. Um, so I'll go with the first one. So. This is for you, Simon. Do firms use positive discrimination to recruit a more diverse graduate population? Um, I think my best answer to this question is that firms should recruit a diverse workforce, but it shouldn't be encouraged to positively discriminating when looking at recruitment. It would go really quite against the Equality Act. So when conducting recruitment exercises, focuses should remain on the individual's suitability for the role rather than their personal characteristics. Um, and hopefully that should lead to a diverse workforce in itself. But companies who notice a lack of diversity in one or many areas of their staff should really look to investigate why it's happening and whether there is discrimination in their, in their recruitment and, and if that's a problem really for them. So I think that's probably the best answer I can give to that. 
Thank you. The next question. My slides showing, by the way, or have they disappeared? Yeah, we can see them. They're just not on the slideshow view. Right. Okay. <laughs> I can't get rid of them at the minute, so it's all right. It doesn't matter too much. Um, so the next question for you, Simon, is: Have there been any cases linked to discrimination through the selection process? As we strive to increase diversity, we are walking the line between positive action and positive discrimination. So keen to understand if there are any learnings in this space on where that line sits. Yeah, so there's a case of Maester and speech design that was heard in 2012. And what that was a court, a European Court of Justice decision. It found that a failure of the company to provide information about a successful application um, to a rejected one may be one of the factors that are taken into account when establishing facts from which it may presume that, the, that there had been discrimination. And one of the learnings from this particular case is that they, you may be expected to share information about a successful candidate and ensure that the candidate's been chosen based on their suitability for the role instead of any discriminatory elements. I think there was a case also, Royal Mail Group and Efobi, and the Supreme Court confirmed that tribunals will want to be certain of any discriminatory link to the reason not to recruit before looking to the employer to explain why it acted as it did. So the court found that there was still a requirement, and this is this is this is how it works with discrimination cases um, in terms of the burden of proof. But the court found that there was still a requirement for the claimants to prove that they'd been discriminated against. But it doesn't. The ruling doesn't mean that employers should still not take precautions against the risk of a discrimination claim. Thank you. So. Next question. In your opinion, Simon, how do you think legislation will change over the next 10 years? Oh, gosh. That's a good <laughs> Let me see if I can find that. Um, I think in terms of um, where legislation is going to go, I think the trends are that there will be more employee focus rights to be balanced, that, that will be introduced to balance against the burden that this places on, on employers. I think there will be a heavier focus on reporting duties for larger businesses regarding their workforce, where there's lack of information about diversity. We've got, as I talked about, the flexible working bill. And there was, as you'll have seen, there's been some controversy this week about the employment bill, which has been delayed since 2000. 19. Um, the last really large significant pieces of legislation that we have in employment law, I'm talking about big ones, are the Employment Rights Act 1996 and the Equality Act 2010. So I definitely think we are going to see some, um, the trends that we will see is in terms of protection for the worker, really in terms of making sure that those workers who occupy more of the lower paid jobs and not placed in vulnerable positions. And I think one of the examples that I highlighted in the talk today was in relation to holiday pay. That's one area which is a significant focus at the minute. Thank you, that's really useful. So next question, is there any movement on banning unpaid internships? 
Not seen any movement to ban them since. I think there was an article that was produced about unpaid internships back in 2021, but they have been silently on the increase since COVID. I do warn people about unpaid internships significantly. I've definitely seen clients who have been criticised by um, HMRC or in relation to national minimum wage audits and being very careful about using unpaid internships. There are specific rules about where these um, internships form part of learning and courses, but you would want to seek specific advice and make sure that your case is absolutely on point because the National Minimum Wage Unit coming round to undertake a huge inspection of your business is uh, one, very time consuming, and they will leave no stone uncovered, uh, uncovered in terms of what they look for. And as you will know, if you are found to have breached the National Minimum Wage legislation, you can be named and shamed. So it's one to be very conscious about. Yeah, definitely not good for PR for sure. No. Um, so next question. So what are the key issues with regards to students with disabilities, would you say? Um, I think it's un understanding their needs and what changes in the workplace that need to be made in terms of reasonable adjustments. Think students with disabilities, whether they're visible or not, clearly have to be, you have to make sure that there is no discrimination either during the recruitment process or their employment. I think one of the significant things that I'm seeing in cases that I've had to deal with over the course of the last couple of years is the impact of mental health issues. Can't always see it, um, but just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there and doesn't mean that that individual may not have a disability. So taking care to understand, making sure that people are not discriminated against, whether directly or indirectly, and also what reasonable adjustments that you can put in place to ensure that, 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 that they're not treated less favourably. Perfect. Um, and final question on my list. Um, what has been the impact of COVID on employment law? Yeah, I think there's a few things to have come out of this. A lot of people are considering changes in career paths. Um, maybe a lot more people with entry level experience looking into looking for jobs. Um, I think one of the things that people still need to make sure that they've got to grips with is how they implemented their furlough scheme, um, how they treat people who are still about worried about coming back into the workplace. Mandatory vaccinations. I've had some queries about about that and you need to be really careful in relation to mandatory vaccinations. I know it's been it's no longer part of the legal requirements, but I still get questions about we don't want people coming to work who've not had a vaccination. I have to talk them down from that position. Um, I think adjustments in the workplace for those people who have suffered physically or mentally from COVID, definitely something to consider. Um, and as I've said, the one the big point I talked about before is the increase in the requests for flexible remote working is definitely something that is high on the agenda and not just rejecting it out of course because it's clearly been shown that it does work. Thanks Simon. Um, 
I'm actually going to go to the chat on here because Louise did have a question, uh, which was in the case of Pimlico, does it make a difference if people are paid via an invoice for service provided, therefore making a distinction as to the employment relationship? No, because I think I understand the question is the question. The question will be is that even if somebody's paid on an invoice, that's suggesting that they are self-employed or operating perhaps through a limited company. The tribunals, all they are interested in is analysing the employment relationship or analysing the relationship and understanding whether it is true self-employment. Because as, is, as was the case in all of those cases, it all worked well for a number of years. They get to the end of the relationship and they say, I've got all these entitlements. I've taken some advice and you haven't paid me. And the court has to decide, are they a worker or are they employed? Now, it may be that they really were truly self-employed, but the question will come down to, um, was the label that was placed on that relationship correct at the time? And what did the contract say? Did it operate in line with the contract? And don't get me wrong, I know we talk about all the cases, often a lot of the cases are where the court has found for the individual. Um, many of the cases also do find that the company has acted cor correctly as well. Um, so it, it's just, I'm afraid it's a case of an analysis on a case-by-case -case basis, but based on the legal principles that have come out of those. The Pimlico one, I'm afraid, is a frightening decision because Mr. Mr. Smith has the ability to go back and claim for such a long period of time in relation to his holiday pay. But I'm happy to take any question. Somebody wants to email me offline in relation to that. Very ha My details were on the slides. Very happy to take that question in a bit more detail. Thanks, Simon. And for anyone that isn't part of our um, LinkedIn group, uh, Simon will actually be on there for the next 24 hours to ask any questions that you have. And as mentioned by Simon, he does um, also have an email as well if anyone does have any questions. Um, today's webinar will also be on uh, recorded on YouTube, so feel free to share that with your colleagues. Um, and lastly, for 2022, we have a brand new series of events, uh, which are Fresh Insights, um, which is the next one is in September. And then we have The Great Debate, which is in June. Um, that will be some panellists discussing an issue, uh, which I'll go on to in a moment. And then we have the Leaders Lunch in July, which will actually be a face to face event in London, which is really exciting. Um, as mentioned, our next event is the Great Debate, which will be on the 1st of June, where we'll be discussing virtual versus in-person recruitment methods. Um, thank you all so much for your time today. We do appreciate it. And of course, thank you to Simon. Um, as mentioned, we'll be we're sending you the links to the recording after this. Um, but thank you so much for your time, everyone. I appreciate it. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Simon. See you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.